Now, take your Bibles, please, and turn to the prophecy of Zechariah. Just thought I'd note as you're, as you're turning there that uh, the prophecy that we read in our Matthew passage tonight is actually in the Zechariah text that we'll be looking at next week. <clears throat> but tonight, Zechariah 8 will be our text for consideration. Zechariah chapter 8, listen to this. This is the very word of God. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous, in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe or for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days." declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. <clears throat> and the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall, try, shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And that is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Fathers, we come to the word now. We pray for eyes to see. We pray you to open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. And may Christ our Savior be exalted. And we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, when I was uh, teaching in a Christian school years ago, uh, one of the years that I was there, the senior class, the graduating class, asked me to speak at their graduation. And of course, that was an honor, and I was glad to accept that invitation. Uh, and at some point, I, um, I surveyed the class and just was looking for some, any input from them about what they might like for me to speak on. And uh, I didn't really get a whole lot of definitive information. They didn't really, it was kind of like, well, speak on whatever you want to speak on. But one bit of input that I remember specifically, all these years later, is that... Uh, uh, when I asked, what would you like me to speak on? Uh, one student wrote, not on, for I know the plans I have for you. You know, that passage from Jeremiah 29, 11. And I guess the reason would be that so many people use that at things like graduations. It's uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Wonderful graduation text, but maybe overused. And that's, I guess, why they said don't, don't, anything but that, kind of. Um, but a future and a hope is exactly what Zechariah 8 is all about. And that message, although maybe to some high school seniors who'd heard it numbers of times at friends' graduations and were tired of hearing it, that message would have been, would have been very welcome to these post-exilic Jews living in the land of Palestine, trying and struggling to rebuild the temple and to serve the Lord in this land to which they had returned. This message would have been a message of a future, message of a hope, would have been very welcome to them. Another thing that would be very encouraging about this message that they heard from Zechariah, as it's recorded for us here in chapter eight, is the fact that this particular title for God is used repeatedly. And I don't know if you noticed it as we read it tonight. But that title, that name, used 18 times in this one chapter, is the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth. God of hosts. Zechariah uses that title. Now you find it numerous places in Scripture throughout the Old Testament. But Zechariah uses, the, in his prophecy, uses the title Lord of Hosts more than three times more than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, Zechariah is one of the minor prophets, 14 chapters. 
He uses the term and the title Lord of hosts almost as many times as Isaiah did in his 66 chapters. The only prophet that decisively used this title more frequently than Zechariah himself did was Jeremiah. Uh, and if you just a little bit of trivia here, the longest book in the whole Bible by word count now, not by chapters, but by word count, the longest book in the Bible is Jeremiah. And Zechariah uses the term and the title Lord of Hosts almost as many times as Jeremiah did. But I say that would have been encouragement, deep encouragement to the people to whom Zechariah prophesied because that title means that God is full of authority and he's all-powerful. He is the Lord of the hosts of heaven. All the legions of the angels are at his command and when he pronounces something, he's able to do what he has promised. And what he promises in this chapter is that his grace will undo the curse and bring abundant blessing. That's the message of Zechariah 8. God's grace undoes the curse and brings abundant blessing. And so there are three points I want us to look at tonight, and they all really, in their essence, they're the same thing. But first we're going to look at transformation in Jerusalem, a radical change that God is going to bring about. Then we're going to see favor for the remnant. And then finally, mourning turned to joy. So first of all, transformation in Jerusalem. This prophecy that begins in chapter 8, and it's a continuation of chapter 7, of course, but everything God has to say here in this text is motivated by His divine jealousy. Motivated by the jealousy of the Lord. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Now that term jealousy doesn't mean what it means to us when we use it in ordinary conversation. It's not some kind of petty um, envy uh, or anything like that. Jealousy is God's holy zeal for his own glory and for his people. Jealousy in, in the context of God and his jealousy is his fervent covenantal love for his people. And when he says he's jealous for her with great wrath, in this context, the wrath isn't any longer towards the people, the rebellious people of God. His wrath is now directed at the enemies of his people. Because God's chastisement of his people had run its course. If you, if you look down at verses 14 and 15 again, thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster on you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. So all that history was reviewed already, remember, in chapter 7, when God says, look, this is why you, your nation, this is why your people underwent what you did. It's because I reached out to you repeatedly by my prophets. I called you to repentance. I called you to obedience, and you refused. You turned that stubborn shoulder. And so then God justly poured out his wrath upon them. But that time of exile is over now. Now was the time for restoration. Now was the time for renewal. 
And that renewal is going to be manifested by nothing less than the return of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. See, that's a central feature, a central and indispensable feature of the covenant relationship of God with his people, and it's God's presence with them. And that's what he's promising here, that he's restoring. He has already returned to them, he says. That's what's being restored, that God would be among his people. And it's, he says, Jerusalem's going to be transformed. This idolatrous city, this rebellious city, is going to be called the holy city, the faithful city. And he uses imagery to describe that, and it's beautiful, isn't it? In verses 4 and 5, old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. What lovely imagery. And part of the reason that's so poignant in this context is because, remember, 70 years ago, Jerusalem was under siege by the Babylonians, and they fell to the Babylonians. And in a siege, children and the elderly are most at risk. During a siege, children and the elderly are the first to die. Because provisions become so scarce and because they're in a weaker state physically than people that are more in, in their prime. And what this passage then depicts is even the most vulnerable, the children and the elderly, they're safe in the very streets of Jerusalem. And as you can imagine, people might have found that difficult to believe. They might have been shaking their heads and saying, what are you talking about? And so God says to them, if it is marvelous in the sight of, this, of the remnant of this people, should it also be marvelous in my eyes? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's not. And he's going to do it. And so you have this depiction throughout the text, really, all through chapter 8. There's woven uh, these descriptions and depictions of the reversal of Jerusalem's circumstances, a reversal of the circumstances of the people of Israel. So in verse 10, it speaks about no wages, no security. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. But God's saying, this is going to change. I'm going to change all of that. Verse 13 says, Formerly Judah and Israel were a byword of cursing. But he's going to make them a blessing. The disaster has ended, and now the Lord of hosts will bless them. That's what verses 14 and 15 said. We looked at that. So that's transformation. These are radical changes, and God is going to bring them about by his own power. And kind of hand in glove with that, we have got our second point, this, this idea of favor for the remnant. You need to, to warm up to this term remnant. It's a great covenantal term 
It's a great redemptive term. It's used three times here in chapter 8. And the, the word remnant is very significant in the history of redemption. Uh, it has strong implications, both on the positive and negative side. It, almost at the same time, there's a, a negative tone here to the term remnant, but also a positive one. It, um, commentator by the name of Mike Butterworth, writing in the New Bible Commentary, made this observation. He said, the word remnant is a significant word which implies both the judgment of God, in other words, there's only a remnant left, and the mercy of God, that that remnant will be saved. So you see, you've got uh, the negative tone and the positive tone, both of which come into the New Testament. And you know that idea of a remnant is, is very prominent in Paul's uh, reasoning in Romans chapters 9 through 11. He speaks repeatedly of the remnant because he's speaking about his countrymen, the Jews, who by and large had rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's arguing for the fact that God still has a remnant even among the Jews. And so the negative tone is captured in Romans 9 verse 27. Why don't you turn there with me to Romans. Let's go there real quick. Turn to Romans chapter 9. And in verse 27, he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So this once multitudinous people are going to be reduced to just a fraction of what they were. So you have, now you, you see how he, the word saved was in there. So you've already got a taste of the positive aspect of it as well. But uh, Israel, which was a multitude, is going to be decimated in a sense to down, down to a remnant. But then the positive part of the concept comes through so clearly in Romans 11, uh, verse 5, for instance. Sorry, ended up back in Zechariah somehow, sorry. Romans 11 and verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. That's a word of encouragement from Paul because it appeared that by and large the Jews had rejected their Messiah. But Paul's saying, no, 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 there's still a remnant. And the Lord speaks to the remnant in verse 6 of uh, Zechariah's prophecy here. Zechariah 8, verse 6. He's speaking to them, and he's speaking to them while they're currently still undergoing circumstances that were pretty discouraging. They hadn't really begun to see a whole lot of evidence of this blessing that God's talking about, but God's giving them assurance, and he declares to them his intent to bless the remnant. That's what we see so wonderfully in verses 11 and 12. But now, I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And the existence of a remnant proves 
that God always preserves a people for himself. And you see that through redemptive history all through the Bible from, from start to finish. Although the, remnant, the, the word remnant doesn't occur really in the story of Noah, what, a, what greater example do you have of God preserving a remnant for himself than that when he destroys all flesh on earth? But in his ark, he saves a man and his three sons and the man's wife and the man's son's wives. There's a remnant floating on the surface of the waters of the flood. But God speaks of a remnant in the context of using Joseph, the son of Jacob, to save a remnant. So if you turn with me to Genesis, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 45, Joseph at this point has revealed himself to his brothers, and they're dismayed. He's trying to calm their souls, assure them that he's not going to take vengeance on them. And in Genesis 45, verse 7, Joseph is saying to them, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. In Isaiah chapter 10, if you turn to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And in the New Testament, Luke applies Amos's reference in chapter 9 to a remnant to the church and to the, to the drawing of the Gentiles to the one true and living God. You see that in Acts chapter 15. This is at the Jerusalem Council. And as Gentiles are coming to faith in in Christ, the church is trying to figure out what to do with them because previously most of the people who who did accept Christ and had kind of formed the core group of the church, so to speak, were Jews who had been converted to Christ. That's the way it was early on. But in Acts 15, they're trying to deal with, well, how do we we deal with these people who are just coming not through Judaism? They weren't proselytes to Judaism first before coming to Christ. They're just coming straight to Christ out of rank paganism. How do we train them? What do we teach them? What do we require of them? And uh, in Acts 15, verses 16 and 17, James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, stands up and he quotes Amos... And he speaks about a remnant, and he speaks about it in context of the New Testament church. Verse 16, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And then borrowing that... uh, that biblical language, that big biblical concept of a remnant, even our confession of faith. Speaking in particular of times in church history where the church seemed very weak, even worldwide. And it might have almost seemed to some people's uh, 
perspective that, well, was there really even a church? And according to Scripture, uh, the Westminster Confession says there's always been a church and there always will be a church. And so in chapter 25, section 5, it says there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Whether the church outwardly appears to be thriving and prospering and advancing or whether it seems to be retreating and failing, God always has a remnant. In all ages, it means God is drawing a people to himself. That's what we've got in verses 7 and 8 of our Zechariah text. I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. What that literally says in the Hebrew is, I will save people from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. It's the same language as we find in that psalm that says, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name shall be praised. And God is saying, I'm going to gather my people from everywhere. Now, verses 9 through 13 of our text tonight are a unit, and you can see that because they're marked off by a phrase used at the very beginning, and it's repeated at the very end, verses 9 through 13, and that phrase is, let your hands be strong. Those are words of encouragement to God's people. In Zechariah's day, what it meant is, trust God and work on the temple. What it means to you and me today is, trust God and do the work of the church. Carry on, because God's going to bless. Maybe more often than not, the prospects for the church and for Christ's kingdom seem grim. I wonder if to, whether uh, to many people, even in our day, prospects for the church seem grim. And it, it will seem that way if we walk by sight rather than by faith. But Jesus promises favor for the remnant of his followers. He promises it in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. And he says, Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that flows into our final point, mourning turned to joy. I borrowed that point title or that wording from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 13. Then the young women shall rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. That's what the Lord is promising in verses 18 and 19 of, of our text this evening. When he's talking about the fasts. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Remember that delegation that we read about in chapter 7. They'd been sent from Bethel, they came to Jerusalem, and they came to inquire about fasting. That was in chapter 7, verse 3. And the answer, the final answer to their inquiry about fasting comes here in that passage I just read. 
It's almost as if God is saying, well, forget about the fasting. Because I'm going to take all those fasts and I'm going to turn them into feasts. I'm going to turn your mourning into joy. And we mentioned the fast that they asked about. They asked about one. God mentions another one when he's giving his initial answer because they were fasting uh, to recognize the uh, anniversary of the, of the destruction of their temple, God's temple. They're also fasting to mourn the, uh, the assassination of their governor, Gedaliah. Well, they've got this fourth month fast too that's not mentioned in chapter 7 because they would fast in the fourth month to commemorate when the, the wall of Jerusalem was breached by the invading Babylonians. And then they would fast in the tenth month to commemorate the beginning of the siege, which was in a different year, but it was, uh, uh, it was when, when the Babylonians first laid siege to Jerusalem. And God is saying that his blessing upon the people is going to be so abundant that it's going to erase the memory of all those things. The invasion, the breach of the wall, the destruction of the temple, all the sorry, tragic things that happened. He's going to erase the memory of those things and replace those things with rejoicing. And it brings up a principle that I want to repeat for you again because it's a profoundly biblical one, and that's the principle that blessing precedes obedience blessing precedes obedience and blessing demands obedience too doesn't it after God says he's going to do all these things after God says he's going to replace their fasts with feasting then he says therefore love truth and peace I am blessing you I've already determined to bless you therefore this is how I want you to live He says in verses 20 through 22 that this small, still small and still struggling remnant in the land is going to become a multitude. It foretells in verses 20 to 22 that nations being drawn to Jerusalem and that's a working out of the promises that were given to Abraham 1,500 years before. And that delegation came from Bethel to entreat the favor of the Lord, it says, back in chapter 7, verse 2. And here at the end of chapter 8, it says, multitudes, strong nations are going to come to entreat the favor of the Lord. That's pretty remarkable. You'd think maybe a weak nation would come to entreat the favor of the Lord because they don't have much going for them. And so they need something. They need some kind of good thing, some sort of blessing. And ah, let's go to the Lord the God of Jerusalem, the God of Israel. But no, strong nations. They're going to come to Him. They're going to flow to Jerusalem, it says. They're going to flow to the true and living God and entreat His favor. And Zechariah prophesies this bountiful increase in verse 23 especially. It's kind of an interesting way of, of proclaiming it as this chapter ends up. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Well, what does that mean? How do we interpret that? What it means is God uses his people to draw others to him. So as it says in Genesis 12, 3, God's initial 
revelation of himself to Abraham. He says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in chapter 17 of Genesis, when he gives him the covenant of circumcision, he says, you shall be the father, not just of one nation, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then, when Abraham died, Isaac became the patriarch. He inherited the promises of Abraham, the blessings of Abraham. God said to Isaac, in your offspring all the nations shall be blessed. You see, that blessing got passed on. And then it got passed on to Jacob. So God says to Jacob in Genesis 35:11, a company of nations shall flow from you. And again, I stress that. Not one nation, a company of them. From Jacob, from Israel. And when it speaks of ten men laying the, taking hold of a Jew, the robe of a Jew, uh, that, that ratio of ten to one, it speaks of a great multitude. Again, a great multitude flowing to the city of Jerusalem, to the holy city. <clears throat> Mourning turned to joy. Now, Old Testament prophets and New Testament writers alike spoke repeatedly and emphatically about a joy that's never going to end. You know those words from Isaiah 35, 10? Uh, you might be familiar with them because there's this little jingle that people used to sing in in worship back in the 70s and the 80s, therefore redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And those same thoughts come again later in Isaiah. Same theme, Isaiah 51, where in verse 3 it says, for the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. And then verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Never-ending joy becomes a reality. Where? in the new Jerusalem. It finally comes to fulfillment as we read in Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, that's where the fulfillment ultimately comes. In the real holy city, the new Jerusalem. And that blessing that promise is made possible and not just made possible but it's guaranteed because of what the very presence of God in the midst of his people revelation 7 verse 17 for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes that relationship of God with his people is one of the essential covenant promises. And you have it in, in Zechariah's prophecy, verse 8. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. 
that promise is reiterated throughout Scripture over and over. God spoke it through Moses in Exodus 6-7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He repeats it in Leviticus 26-12. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And in Jeremiah 31 verse 33, that same promise, that same concept is repeated and given in relation to the new covenant. I will be their God. They will be my people. Mourning turned to joy. As it says in uh, Psalm 30, verse 5, God's anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. For God's elect, He disciplines His children. he's, He's a loving Father, and any child that's without discipline is not a legitimate child. God disciplines all those whom He receives, so He will discipline, but in love, He restores relationship with His children. And ultimately, he always turns sorrow into joy. So one last point of application I'd like to make. I want to go back to that principle of uh, blessing preceding obedience. The commands of God that we, uh, we read in verses 16 and 17 were issued when? After he had already promised his favor. So here's the principle of blessing precedes obedience. God's people don't obey in order to acquire his favor. Let me say that again. God's people do not obey in order to acquire his favor. God's people obey because by sheer grace they have already received favor. And for us to receive favor is only possible through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You read the pages of Scripture from the beginning to the end, And what you discover is that the people of Israel never did render satisfactory obedience to God. They never did love Him with all their hearts. But where Israel failed, God succeeded through the faithful obedience of His Son. All of God's people in every age have peace with Him and will enjoy eternal blessing with Him because of Christ our Savior, and there's no better future and there's no greater hope than that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God. Oh, how we thank you that you do know the plans you have for us. Plan to give us a future and a hope, and we look forward to that hope. We thank you for the foretastes of it that we've already received and that we enjoy even now as members of your covenant community, as members of the Church of Christ. And we pray you grow us in grace and grow us in anticipation of that blessed hope that we have and that glorious future. And we thank you for it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.